This episode of Food Psych is brought to you by my intuitive eating online course and community. If you're ready to leave diet culture behind and reclaim the life it stole from you, learn more and sign up at christyharrison.com slash course. That's christyharrison.com slash course. Welcome to Food Psych, a podcast about intuitive eating, health at every size, body liberation, and taking down diet culture. I'm your host, Christy Harrison, and I'm an anti-diet registered dietitian and certified intuitive eating counselor, offering online courses and programs to help people all over the world make peace with food. Join me here every week as I talk with interesting people from all walks of life about their relationships with food and their bodies. Uh-huh. I, I, I remember I was teething, little gums bleeding, Friday evening it was all about eating. When I became a teen, it was all about beefing, now I'm ready for the world. Hey there, welcome to episode 156 of Food Psych. I'm your host, Christy Harrison, and today I'm talking with Joy Cox, an activist and researcher who studies the fat liberation movement. We talked about how we can fight back against internalized weight stigma and body shame, why refusing to conform to cultural and societal expectations can help change the world, the racist roots of diet culture, and why fighting it is an important part of creating a more inclusive society, the problems with framing large body size as quote-unquote obesity and labeling it as a disease and so much more. It's a really wonderful episode. I can't wait to share our conversation with you in just a moment. But first, just a quick reminder that next week I'm going away on my honeymoon, so we'll be rerunning a couple of our most loved shows from the archives while I'm gone. I know a lot of people say that they listen to episodes multiple times. People have told me they listen to them like three or four times sometimes to let the info sink in. So if you're one of those folks, you can take advantage of this time to refresh on some of the really juicy episodes, or you can catch up on episodes you might have missed the first time around, because I know we've had a lot of new listeners since some of these aired, so sometimes people don't make it all the way back in the archives. I know I'm like that with podcasts I start listening to. You know, I'll get like a few episodes in in the archives, but then more episodes come out, and so, you know, it's hard to catch up. Um, So this will help you catch up on some episodes you might have missed and refresh on all this great stuff, and these are really good episodes. I really love them, and I'm excited to re-air them uh, next week and the week after. And then the following week, I'll be back in June, starting in June with some great new episodes as usual. At some point later in the summer, we'll probably be taking another break so that I can work on my book. Remember my book deal? So excited. The manuscript is due in the fall, and so it's hard to fit it all in. So I probably am going to need another little break, but I'll give you more details on that as it gets closer. And now I'll answer this week's listener question, which is from a listener named Hannah, who writes, What are your thoughts on combining intuitive eating with competitive sports? I work in all-star cheerleading as both a coach and administrator. I myself also train other sports, more or less goal-oriented, and I'm in recovery for many years of eating disorder not otherwise specified. Lots of our athletes train X times a week, year-round, very intensively, and most have a pretty okay relationship with food. Yet, because cheerleading is a performance sport with teeny-tiny uniforms, there is some pressure to look a certain way, and I know some of our athletes do watch what they eat, and we have some full-blown eating disorder cases from time to time. I myself had to quit cheer because of my eating disorder seven years ago. Athletes do require proper nutrition in order to excel, so how can we support our athletes in having a healthy relationship with food with an intuitive mindset without compromising on performance. Now that I'm in recovery, I struggle with this a lot as I don't want to waste my training by eating quote unquote unhealthy foods, but I want to establish a relaxed relationship with food with no limitations. 
I also want to set an example to our athletes and help them develop a healthy relationship with food. So thanks, Hannah, for that great question. And before I answer just my usual disclaimer, these answers are for informational and educational purposes only and aren't meant as a substitute for individual medical or mental health advice. So I would say first and foremost, there's no such thing as quote unquote wasting your training. That is the diet mentality. And the diet mentality is really the manifestation of diet culture within individuals. So diet culture is out there. Diet mentality is in your mind. It's what you've internalized from diet culture. It's another word for internalized diet culture beliefs or internalized fat phobia in some cases. So anyway, thinking that you're going to be, quote unquote, wasting your training by eating certain foods is very much coming from the diet mentality. So intuitive eating is about making peace with all foods and recognizing that there's really no such thing as, quote unquote, healthy or, quote unquote, unhealthy foods. There are foods for different purposes. There are foods for different times in your life. Some, you know, foods you might end up eating more or less frequently. Some foods might be a special occasion type of food. But foods themselves aren't inherently healthy or unhealthy. For example, if you were really hungry and you were craving something umami, you know, like that rich sort of proteiny flavor and salty and satisfying, maybe warm or hot, an apple just wouldn't cut it. Like that would not actually be a quote unquote healthy choice in that case because it would be denying your needs. You know, it would be denying what your body and your brain are telling you you want at that moment. And so in that case, a burger would actually be a much better choice. You know, it's like you might consider a burger, quote unquote, unhealthy by diet culture standards, but actually in the context of that moment of what your body's craving, what your mind is telling you sounds really good. And again, intuitive eating is a really strong connection between your body and your brain that we're all born with. We're all born knowing what we want to eat, knowing when we're hungry, knowing when we're full, being able to trust those cues, being able to trust our satisfaction and knowing what seems satisfying. So when you're really in touch with your body and your body and your brain are connected in that way and not severed by diet culture the way it does for most of us at some point in our lives, um, you know, when you, when you have that connection and you're listening to it, you're probably going to choose something like a burger or whatever sounds good that's going to fit that bill, that's going to be, you know, hitting all those points of umami and salty and satisfying that you're craving. And you're not going to try to substitute something like an apple or a vegetable or whatever, because that's just not going to give you that same experience. So that's just one example, you know. And similarly, I would say for people with orthorexic tendencies or people caught up in what I call the wellness diet, Eating more foods that diet culture considers quote unquote unhealthy is actually much quote unquote healthier than continuing to only eat foods that diet culture considers quote unquote healthy. And you can see why I'm using quote marks around the word healthy and unhealthy here because it's a word with a really relative meaning. It really shifts its meaning depending on the context and so essentially is sort of meaningless when applied to food. You could say a healthy, quote unquote, choice for someone with orthorexia is to eat foods that are, quote unquote, unhealthy. And then, like, what does that really mean? You know, so diet culture really labels foods as healthy and unhealthy. And I think 
breaking free from diet culture and eradicating the diet mentality in your own mind really requires rejecting those labels and not putting the labels of healthy or unhealthy on particular foods. So I would say for you then, work on rooting out the diet mentality, you know, again, your internalized diet culture beliefs about food and bodies, and make peace with the foods that you consider quote unquote unhealthy. And you'll be modeling a great example for your athletes when you can do this, when you can stop, you know, saying that something is unhealthy or feeling ashamed of eating things that you consider quote unquote unhealthy and realizing that all foods have their place in an intuitive relationship with food. And yes, there is some gentle nutrition guidance that can come into play once you've broken down the diet mentality, once you've rejected all of diet culture's rules about food. But just from your question, it tells me that you're still stuck in the diet mentality in certain ways. And that's not a judgment. That's not, you know, to shame you or anything, because who's not stuck in the diet mentality in our culture? It takes a lot of work to break free from it completely. And it often will resurface in subtle ways that you then have to start working on at sort of a deeper level down the line. So it sounds like that's something that would be really helpful for you is to just continue working on how the diet mentality is showing up for you. Work on making peace with food. That's such an essential principle of intuitive eating. And then from that place, when you have made peace with food, you can start tuning into your body to figure out which foods will sit best and help you perform well when you're doing various athletic pursuits. And again, this is after you've eradicated the diet mentality, after you've done your best to reject it and sort of kick it out of your mind and make peace with food. You can tune into your body to figure out which foods sit best and help you perform well. Like you might want to experiment with what sounds good to eat before training and find foods that are easier on the stomach, you know? So you might find like white bread toast with jam is actually a great snack to eat before you train. And because it's, you know, easily digestible, gives you energy. It's delicious. It's actually something that some of my clients have found works for them. And so that's why I am thinking of it. Experiment with things like that. So like what's going to sit well on your stomach before you train or do something, you know, intensive with your body. And probably it's not going to be the stuff that diet culture labels, quote unquote, healthy in this day and age, really under the guise of wellness culture or the wellness diet, what I call the new sneaky guise of diet culture. Because a lot of those foods take longer to digest, you know, a lot of those foods have um, a lot of fiber and high fat content. And that's great, you know, for certain, like that's great for making it satisfying. That's great for, you know, helping things be delicious. But it's probably not going to necessarily sit super well before you go out and do some really intense movement. If you eat something with a lot of fiber and that's really filling an hour or less before you move your body, you know, and everybody's different. So see what sits best for you. That might not be totally true for some people. Some people enjoy having like a really peanut buttery um, shake or like peanut butter on an English muffin or something, you know, something with a lot of stick to your ribs quality to it before they move their body. And they find that that's just fine for their stomach. They're able to move their body without any pain. Really the goal with eating before you move your body is to minimize any pain and digestive discomfort, like eating enough to feel satisfied and feel like you have energy to perform, but not not eating something that sits in your stomach and makes it hurt while you're doing it. So whatever that takes for you to figure it out, you know, and 
again, diet culture and diet mentality can weave their way in and make you feel bad about particular choices that might actually make you feel better. Like, you know, that example of white bread toast that I mentioned, white bread toast with jam or crackers with hummus or something like that. You know, whatever it is that seems satisfying to you before you move your body, go for it. I know Michael Phelps, who is 23 gold medals. He's the most decorated Olympic athlete, has the most gold medals of anyone who's competed in the Olympics. He says he ate a lot of fast food and pizza and ice cream and pasta when he was training and racing. And, you know, it helped him get to that point. It was fuel for him to get those gold medals. And so, you know, some of the foods that might feel good to eat right before training might not be the most action-packed foods for the rest of the day beforehand. And so you can experiment with which foods are going to be really satisfying and give you sustained energy and protein and maybe have like a burger or chicken nuggets or pizza or pasta or whatever a little while before you start training, like several hours maybe. And then have that sort of simpler, more quote unquote refined, refined foods get such a bad rap in our culture and wellness culture right now. Um, But actually, that might be the most helpful for like having something on your stomach right before you move your body. So you can tune into your body to figure out what works. And intuitive eating is really great for that. Intuitive eating is very compatible with sports nutrition in terms of seeing what's going to feel good, what's going to help you perform, what's going to help you feel energized. And it's really about tuning in and noticing how things feel in your body and how, you know, also other aspects of self-care affect your performance. So one caveat about thinking how foods might fuel your performance is to remember that there's so much else that goes into fueling performance and having energy and feeling your best that has nothing to do with what you eat. So remember, like sleep can affect your energy and your ability to perform athletically. Stretching, whether you're, you know, stretched out enough, whether you're really tight, whether you need a massage or a soak in a bathtub or, you know, a good stretching or yoga session so that you can move your body in particular ways. And if not, you might be a little tight and not as able to perform certain movements. And that has nothing to do with what you ate. That has to do with maybe you didn't stretch enough, you know, when you were cooling down last time, or maybe you're really stiff and sore. Remembering that there's so much else that goes into your performance and your abilities in life and in athletics that has nothing to do with what you eat. Another example is like if you're coming down with a cold or if you have have allergies, and I'm talking like seasonal allergies, not food allergies, because again, that's a place where people tend to put a lot of blame on food. But, you know, you're struggling with seasonal allergies. You're kind of congested. You're not breathing as well. Maybe you're not going to move as fluidly as you normally would in a particular athletic pursuit. So just recognize that food is not the be-all, end-all of health. I think that's worth repeating for everyone, no matter whether they're an athlete or not. And also, I just want to say, after answering this whole question about athletics, is to remind people that if you're not moving your body, if you're in a place where athletics are contraindicated for you because you've had a compulsive relationship with them, or you feel like you're in orthorexic territory and you know moving your body is quote-unquote working out and wrapped up in a sort of idea about purity and health that's really detrimental, taking time off of movement is super important. And don't let my talking about movement and athletics deter you from that because you know what's best for you deep down you know whether your relationship with movement is compulsive or not and trust that you know trust that intuition 
take time off of movement if it is compulsive and learn to relate to it from a more joyful place. And that goes for Hannah, who asked the question, too. You know, it sounds like you've struggled with eating disorder not otherwise specified. You've struggled with a lot in your relationship with food and you were um, competitive and cheerleading as well. So you might have some relationship with movement that's a little bit compulsive. So I would work on that, you know, examine that and see if you can let yourself take days off of movement without feeling guilty let yourself go on vacation without having structured movement involved. Allow yourself to be flexible and test that and see if you can do it with a lot of you know, significant anxiety or if it brings up some anxiety at first, but then you're like, okay, this wasn't so bad. I actually didn't die because I took a couple weeks off of any structured form of movement. That's a good sign if you can take time off and be flexible. And then back to a couple more points on your original question, thinking about after training for some sort of athletic pursuit, if you find you're really hungry, then and, you know, something like a burger or something really satisfying sounds good, then have that. Right. Let yourself have what feels good to you and sounds good in the moment. Some people, after they move their body intensively, aren't super hungry right away. So you could just have a snack when you first come back and then, you know, wait a little longer to have dinner or whatever your next meal is. Give yourself some time to prepare it, for example. But making sure that you're allowing yourself to have what sounds good, what feels good. And this is also, I should say, uh, more germane for people who are actually in that place of intuitive eating where they can attune to their hunger and their fullness. People with active eating disorders often can't because the eating disorder has really disconnected them from their hunger and fullness cues. Like I said, it severs, you know, diet culture and eating disorders are really on a spectrum. They're kind of the same thing, the eating disorder mentality and the diet mentality. And when you're really in it with an eating disorder or dieting, you often have that connection between your body and your brain really severed and can't necessarily know when you're hungry or when you're full or when you feel satisfied, it's oftentimes like feels very out of control or you feel like you don't have any hunger signals because you've been suppressing them for so long. So all of that is worth considering as well. This is why intuitive eating is such a complex thing, by the way, and why I do an online course about it and teach people about it in my coaching and all this stuff, because there's a lot of nuances to consider. So I'm just throwing in some caveats here to let you know that it's not necessarily as simple as, oh, yeah, I'm really hungry after moving my body, so I'm going to eat. I mean, ultimately, it is that simple once you get back to that connection between your body and your brain. But for many of us, that is a hard road. That's a long road and it won't happen right away. So, you know, just making sure that you eat consistently throughout the day every few hours um, is really important for people who aren't, you know, in touch with their body's cues to that degree. And by the way, I will say that when you're eating every few hours sort of mechanically to get your body back in touch with its cues, it's actually not that different than how you're probably going to eat when you're eating intuitively. Because most people, when they are in touch with their hunger and fullness cues, are hungry every few hours for something like, you know, either a meal or a snack, and it sort of alternates throughout the day. And I will say that's totally how I eat. And it's really magical to see like, oh, the meal plans that I've seen given or that I've given people in eating disorder recovery are very similar in terms of like patterning as what my body naturally does throughout the day as an intuitive eater. And that's pretty cool. 
So I hope that answers your question. And it sounds like you're really doing the best you can for these athletes that you're you're training. And it's really awesome that they have someone thinking about this stuff and trying to model a good, you know, peaceful relationship with food for them, because that's probably not something they see out in the world that much. So you're going to be really helping them by exposing them to this more peaceful way of thinking about food. So to submit your own question for a chance to have it answered on an upcoming episode, go to christyharrison.com slash questions. That's christyharrison.com slash questions. And then if you want a whole library of answers from me to help you master intuitive eating, plus the chance to ask me any question you want and get a wealth of other amazing content and support along with it, join my online course, Intuitive Eating Fundamentals. Maybe you've been listening to this podcast for a while and you're loving the idea of intuitive eating and health at every size, but you aren't sure how to put it into practice for yourself. That is what I designed this course to help you do so that you can really kick diet culture to the curb, kick the diet mentality out of your mind and free up time and space for all the other things that really matter in life, the things that are so much more important than food and your body. The course will give you a ton of guidance and support in recognizing diet culture for the life thief that it is, including all of its subtle forms like what I call the wellness diet, which I just spoke about, that sneaky version of diet culture that pretends to be all about wellness but is really just about keeping you locked into yet another rigid and obsessive way of thinking about food and your body. And I got some great feedback from a member with initials HM who just completed the course and used it to help her avoid falling for the wellness diet. She wrote, I love this course as it was the support I needed during an especially difficult and quote unquote food sensitive time in my life due to an illness. When so many people have different views and opinions about what to eat for medical conditions, it was incredibly valuable to have a voice that I could trust. So if you're ready to join her and hundreds of other members who've used this course and community to reconnect with their body's natural wisdom about food, break free from diet culture, and reclaim their lives, head over to christyharrison.com slash course to learn more and sign up. That's christyharrison.com slash course. And now, without any further ado, let's go talk to Joy Cox. So tell me about your relationship with food growing up. Okay, so uh, my relationship with food growing up is really interesting because when you ask that question, uh, I have to think back. And I didn't really have, I mean, growing up, our family kind of celebrated a lot with food. And so, you know, whether it was a Friday for the weekend or something like that, and my mom would take us out and we would all, you know, we would go out and we would eat for pizza or different things like that. You know, my relationship was with food was pretty neutral. I mean, I ate what was put in front of me. <laughs> I ate what what you know what my parents bought for me. Um, I ate the same foods as my sisters. We had a lot of gatherings like around food. So culturally, I guess being a part of a black family like that was a thing. Um, or cooking out in the city, and you know, my grandma she would cook for the block almost, you know, who are all the kids in the area who was on the block. They were all family to us. So she cooked for one, she kind of cooked for all that sort of thing. But there wasn't too much. I mean, we didn't do, you know, talk around food being good or bad or, or any of those things. It was just more along the lines of, you know, we would celebrate around food. Uh, We had like hoagie nights, Um, Where my mom, I mean, she used to put like, uh, we had like newspaper and different things. Like, so she would put it around the food. We make our own hoagies. We 
you know, make our own plates, our own meals, things like that. Uh, watch TV shows, special shows, but more around, I mean, that kind of was my relationship. So kind of growing up being happy and I'm from Philadelphia. So during certain times of the year, I mean, there are some foods that are more important than others. And so summertime, especially it's like water ice and soft pretzels. Yeah. <laughs> Philly's known for cheese steaks, but we didn't eat those as much. But yeah, I mean, we had like our cornerstone meals and, and, and a lot of, you know, come by and grab a plate. This is what we're doing. Everybody needs to eat that sort of thing. Nice. So very communal, it sounds like. Yes, for sure. That's really nice. And so, yeah, it sounds like you were sort of protected from diet culture language around food for the most part. Yeah, for the most part. I mean, I didn't really get, I mean, so I kind of grew up in a family that had different size bodies all over the spectrum. My mom, when we lived in Philadelphia, we also at one point lived with my grandmom and my aunt and my cousin. Um, and my aunt was was a pretty large woman, um, but she was like, you know, she was outspoken. She was having fun. She would go to parties. She would dance, you know, all of these different things. And so I grew up with an understanding about my size that I was capable of doing pretty much what everybody else was. So I danced with my cousins. I danced with my sisters. My mom sent everybody out to go play. I had to go out and play with them, you know, all of those types of things. Um, and so I didn't grow up seeing my weight as obstruction or hindrance. Um, it wasn't until we moved to another part of the country. I relocated to Johnstown, Pennsylvania, which is like right outside of Pittsburgh, that I really start to notice that there was a difference in my body size and how that was received by other people. So without having my aunt kind of being that beacon of light to look towards, there was a lot of, you know, then you have these statements about being fat and not being cool and, you know, and people not necessarily wanting to be friends with you or interacting with you in, in certain ways because of your body size. But for the first, you know, first seven, seven or so years of my life, that was not really a reality to me. Mm. Yeah. So it sounds like having your aunt be such a good model of like someone in a larger body just enjoying herself, not making a thing of it, not being hindered by her body size, you know, mentally, not thinking it was a hindrance was helpful to you. But then the teasing, the bullying and the other town kind of caught up with you. Right. I mean, then you start to notice things a little bit more. And I mean, I, I will say on some level, because there's certain things like you don't, as a child, just things that I didn't understand. Like I didn't understand why my body was, was growing in size or, you know, I have an older sister. And one day, you know, we sat down and we had a conversation and she asked me pretty much along the lines, like, why do I think that I turned out the way that I did? Um, in reference to my body size. And, um, and I told her, I said, well, I have no, I don't know. I said, you know, mommy fed me what she fed y'all. When you went out and played, so did I. I said, but when puberty hit, my hips spread and my sisters got taller. And so carrying the weight where I did, you know, that was a not necessarily like a source of conflict for me, but it was just a lot that I didn't know. Um, and so at a young age, I had to learn on some ways of how to kind of advocate for myself because people were already seeing me as different. And I can remember being in a doctor's office and they, you know, the doctor is like talking to my mom and they're kind of talking like I'm not in the room at all, you know, about her putting me on on diets and things. And so 
and I had to, you know, speak up for myself. And at the time, I mean, I didn't know about Hayes and I didn't know about fat activism or any of those things, but I basically told her I would change my body when I got ready. There was a lot of, I mean, I was like 12 years old being sent home with like packets from the doctor about like the list of things that they wanted me to eat, the list of things that they didn't want me to eat, you know, all of the that. good and bad food language. Yeah. Right. That, that type of moralizing. And so when you think, you know, when you're 11 and you're 12 years old and you're kind of growing up with this idea um, in your mind about your body. It was a lot for me because at the time on some levels, you know, I hadn't even hit puberty at that point. So, you know, there was just a lot of, you know, at this age, like I'm supposed to take this type of charge over like like I can determine what comes in my house, what doesn't come in my house. You know, there's just a lot of responsibility, personal responsibility that um, I can remember being assessed to me as a younger individual. Yeah. And that's such a vulnerable time in life, too. Like you kind of everybody's growing and changing and doesn't really know what's happening to their bodies at that time. And then sort of the added shame of that feeling like, well, what's happening with your body is wrong. That's really painful. Right. For sure. And I mean, that carried on, I mean, up through my adult years. And I mean, looking back and thinking about things and I don't want to jump ahead. So, you you know, you can let me know. But I mean, I can remember working out all summer in hopes of being smaller in size and, and not watching anything change. <laughs> like, you know, putting in these three months of, of doing workout regimens and expecting to see change and not seeing anything happen or, you know, in different things. And, and there's that fantasy of like transformation and, you know, going back to school. I hear so many people talk about that. Like, mm-hmm. I'm going to go back to school, a different person, you know, I'm going to be going to be totally changed after the summer. Right. And then not seeing change and like now knowing what I know. Right. And now having the education that I have, it all makes sense. <laughs> but at the time, I didn't have the means to kind of navigate through what was going on with my body or understanding like, hey, you haven't hit puberty yet. And and there are things that are happening to your body and, you know, and being able to accept yourself as you are and you know, living in Philly and kind of, we would go back and we would travel during summer breaks. Right. And so during that time, it's like, oh, well, like you're back in, you know, you're back in this paradise place where you have people who look like you. And I mean, even in more urban areas in general, you have people who look like you. And so I'm seeing bigger bodies and I'm seeing, you know, other individuals kind of living their best lives in the bodies that they have. And then I'm coming back to this place where it's predominantly white with high Eurocentric, you know, features. And so that's, you know, even smaller black bodies are being ousted that are not being considered as attractive and all of these different things. And so trying to navigate through that was hard work. I was just going to ask like what the difference was between Philly and the other town that you moved to. And it sounds like race was a huge factor, like racial bias in how people looked and, you know, sort of a Eurocentric beauty standard, like you said. Yeah, for sure. And I mean, it's still, I say this, I mean, to its shame, Johnstown still is a a pretty racist place to be. Um, And so we were just in the news not too long ago about the people who voted for Trump. So, hey, that was us. Uh, Prior to that, I think maybe two years ago or so, there was someone who rode around with, they made like a edifice on the back of their truck 
um, during Martin Luther King Day that pretty much had like a dial of Martin Luther King, I think, like hanging over the back to celebrate like James Earl Ray. And so, I mean, being in that place where everything is predominantly white and that is the standard that people should kind of ascribe to or they're hoping that people ascribe to, it's not just that you're fat. It's like, no, you're fat and you're black. And my sisters were smaller in size. And in some ways, they kind of faced that same. They've had their own set of struggles uh, with accepting their bodies and accepting themselves from living in a town that literally did not accept us at times. Right. Yeah. So there was this intersection of oppression going on there, it sounds like. Right. For sure. Yeah. So did that like drive you further into dieting and stuff then? Was that sort of the doctor's office visit and stuff, did that kick off like a string of diets that you went on to try to shrink your body? Well, I think, you know, sometimes, yeah. And kind of looking back, it, it almost was like it was the norm, right? So like, oh, okay, well, now I'm going to restrict my, my, my eating to these certain foods and I'm going to, you know, kind of eat these things. But uh, like I said, again, there was like really no changes that were happening in my body. And one of the biggest things that was the most interesting for me is that in the year of 2000, I got sick and I had to get my gallbladder out. Resulting in that my last year of high school, I wanted up missing like three months of school, something like that. Because after they went, well, first, if kind of getting pushed over, going to the, you know, going to the hospital, um, complaining of chest pains, they wouldn't treat me. So it was like, no, it's not anything. But every time I would eat when it was time for my food to digest, I would have these type of pains that were like unimaginable. I had no idea what they were. Um, so my mom, um, at one point, you know, she kind of put her foot down and they decided to do an x-ray and they held up the x-ray and they seen that they thought I had gallstones. So they were saying, oh, well, you know, there was like this, you know, they wanted to take my gallbladder out, but it was right before Thanksgiving. So they let me go home and then I had to come back afterwards. But I remember even then the doctor kind of making these remarks and he told me that, you know, I should stop eating so much fried chicken. And I can remember, you know, at the time I was offended, right? I was upset. And I remember telling my family and they kind of chuckled about it or whatever. But I, I can remember feeling like he said those things because of the size of my body. Right. And be and ultimately because of my race, because, you know, you, you try to tie, make these ties between the two. When in truth, like my sickness didn't have anything to do with that. And I ultimately winded up whenever they went in to do all the stuff that they were looking at. Um, my bowel duct was inflamed. So they winded up cutting it, which later... I had pancreatitis as a result. For the first time in my life, I actually lost weight. I mean, there has been time there have been times in my life because when people talk about health and we know that health is subjective, you know, but they talk about, you know, well, if you're larger in size, there's no way you can be healthy. There's, you know, this that sort of idea that's floating around. But then I'm finding myself in these situations where my body functioned fine. My heart was beating fine, you know, and now you have something that's really happening in your life that you can say, okay, wait a minute, I think that there's something wrong. Right, like you're actually sick. It's Your body's not functioning well. Exactly. And these things are not because of my weight. I lost a good amount of weight. 
because you're sick, right? Like because I was you couldn't sick. Eat Absolutely. <laughs> the way you needed to. Yeah. Right. And then I remember coming back to school and people, you know, I mean, people were happy to see me, but then there's also this issue of like, oh, wow, you know, oh, you look great. And, you know, and it's like, yeah, but this is not the way that you want to, this is not, you know, if people knew the background as to why, you know, like you said, not being able to eat and, you know, and, and restricting yourself and, and all of those things and the pain that's associated with that, you know, wasn't celebratory. Right. Yeah, those compliments are so toxic. I feel like when people compliment others based on weight loss, it's like erasing their humanity because it just it's erasing like all the things that went into that change, which usually in a lot of cases are really problematic, whether it's illness like with you or grief, like some people experience grief and they lose weight because they can't eat because they're so sad or maybe they are trying to diet and trying to lose weight, but they're doing it, you know, like all diets are very self-punishing and very like, you know, self-denying and and sort of throwing yourself on the fire of diet culture, really. So like even, you know, intentional weight loss really shouldn't be celebrated because even if someone wants to do it, it's like you want to, but it's also you want to because you're conditioned by this oppressive system that we're in to want to, and it's actually really harmful to you. So like any way you slice it, it's not something to compliment. Right, definitely problematic. But the other part of that is that now that I, at that point, I was at a smaller weight, So now it's like you want to do whatever you can to stay at this smaller weight, right? Like, so then what are you going to do? Which transitions me into graduating high school. Now I'm on my own. So now I have to make decisions about what I'm going to have for dinner. What am I going to have for, you know, that sort of thing. Grocery shopping for yourself, all of that. Yeah. Kind of going back and forth. For me, it was a lot ping pongy. There were days when it was like, you know, oh, it's no big deal because after I graduated high school, I moved to Pittsburgh. Okay, so another urban area. And now there is this type of fanfare that I'm getting that I never had before. Um, And so now I'm being approached by other people and I'm not seen as the fat person or, you know, you know, just different things like that. So now I'm also grappling with this dynamic of, oh, well, wait a minute. I think that while I was living in Johnstown, there were some things that that were not being shared with me about who I should feel like I am or my body image and different things like that. And so kind of coming to, you know, grappling with that, trying to come to grips with that while also being in school, I decided to go to culinary arts school. So, you know, learning French cuisine and cooking with butter and folding things over and, you know, and all of those different things um, that kind of bring me to a place where there is yo-yo dieting, right? There's some days I'm on, some days I'm off, some days I'm committing to um, being more active, other days not as much. You know, I'm starting and I'm finishing and I'm thinking on some level, you know, what I can do to, I guess, quote unquote, better myself or better, make my body in a better, in a better state than what it was. And I'm working out and I'm doing these different things. And then I relocate again. (laughs) And this time I have to do my externship for school. So I decide to go back to Philly. Um, And a lot of things have transpired since the summers that I've spent in Philadelphia. I lost my grandmom while I was in school. To me, she was one of the closest people 
in my life, period. And so she didn't get to see me graduate. But when, when I went back to do my externship, I went back to the house where we used to go for the summer where she used to live. That must have been hard. It was rough, but kind of walking through there and I guess in some ways being able to make peace, going back to the place like where she was and and um, where I where, you know, I was always familiar with seeing her and, and different things like that. But my aunt was there because that's her daughter. And so she was still living um, at the time and she was going through her own battles with depression and, and different things like that. And so she wasn't the same person that she was before. And she had noticed that I was smaller than what I was before. And so um, a lot of people made comments about that and about the size of my body. But in a lot of ways, at that point, I was pretty much on my own. Yeah. So your like model of self-love and acceptance was kind of changed. She no longer sort of held that for you. And, and it sounds like you kind of, yeah, you were on your own and you were getting compliments for your body size shrinking. So of course, it probably felt like you had to just keep that up. Right. And so on some levels, at least for me at the time, like I wanted to keep it. I knew what it was mm -hmm. like to go shopping in stores and almost not have anything fit. I knew what it was like to struggle with whether it was people making comments about me, looking at me differently. I knew it was like not to get attention, kind of to walk around the world and people act like you're invisible versus now where you are getting attention, even at sometimes when I didn't want attention, which was typically from men. I don't like being chased down the street. <laughs> Nobody likes being chased down the street, you know, wave that, honk that, whatever, you know, all of that stuff. But being able to kind of navigate this world a little bit easier in this smaller body because I could go to places and I could buy things and I could be in and be out opposed to it taking me hours to shop and and different things like that. And so, yeah, because the world is more made for people with smaller bodies like it's not that it doesn't have to be that way. And I hope it won't always be that way. But for now, I think that's the sad reality, you know, right. I mean, there were just certain things that I didn't have to think about anymore. And so, again, that pressure to kind of stay there, that pressure to kind of be there. And I think even in some ways, you know, there's a certain level of ignorance around there was a certain level of ignorance, I guess, around me losing weight because I, I thought to myself, like, now that it's gone, it's just going to stay gone. You know what I mean? It was kind of like that thing where I didn't feel like I had to do a whole lot. Because I didn't do a whole lot to lose it. Yeah, it was unintentional through the illness. And and I think there's this myth in our society and diet culture that's like, lose the weight and keep it off. Lose the weight and it's gone forever. And then just get used to your new life. And that's not true. And that's, of course, the myth that diet culture wants to sell us to be like, do this shiny new diet and pay us a lot of money and then you'll never have to diet again. But like the reality is that with every diet, it's going to be a yo-yo you know, right, weight regain right. cycle for the vast, vast majority of people. And for those who for whom it's not and it lasts longer than five years, it's like there's some really disordered stuff that goes into that quote unquote maintenance, you know. Right. Absolutely. And so over time, the weight it crept back up. I was eventually back at start again, <laughs> back at the, you know, back at my original weight that I was before. And by this time I was I had switched careers the culinary arts thing was too much. Yeah, what was too much about it? Well, you know, things that they don't tell you about the restaurant industry is just that it breaks your body down. 
Um, and so working super long hours, I got to the point to where my skin was so infused with onions and carrots and celery that like when I wet my hands, like the smell of the vegetables would kind of mm. seep out. Oh man. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so I was like, I didn't sign up for this. I don't want to walk around smelling like, yeah. you know, stuffing. This is too much. And like burning yourself all the time and cutting yourself and all yeah, that. Yeah. So I have, I mean, I have my war scars. I chopped myself enough, burnt myself enough. And then, you know, you just think about like, you know, the state of your body, if you're standing on your feet 12 to 16 hours a day, um, typically on floors that are not designed for you to stand on your feet 12 to 16 hours a day. And so they kind of have those relief mats now that they would put down in kitchens where people can kind of move and operate um, because they're supposed to alleviate some of the pressure. But being inside of the, the restaurant industry, I found out like, you know, when people were spending time with their families, I wasn't because I was cooking for them, you know, and so they're going to restaurants and eating and I'm the person that's there. And I just kind of started to think about a future. Like, is this something that I wanted to do long term? Is it something that I wanted to be a part of? And I mean, I was, again, in a larger body. The double whammy to that is that I'm also a woman. And so, you know, though traditionally women take the place in the kitchen in the homes, the restaurant industry, particularly if you're talking about people who cook for a living, chefs, that's a male-dominated profession. And so kind of having to deal with that, deal with different people, if they're putting you like, okay, you watch the toast, <laughs> we'll cook the food, you know, that sort of thing. And I can remember when I first went to go apply for a job, the woman who interviewed me, I was applying for the position of the cook um, to be a line cook in the restaurant and she said, you know, I would much rather have you out front to wait tables because you're pretty. And I'm like, but that's like, I cook for a living. Like, I don't, I don't want to carry the food out to other people. Right. That's what I want to do is cook. Like, it's a lot of like objectification in, in that industry, it sounds like. And just a lot of, you know, the idea on some level, like, can you actually do the job? Are you physically able? Can you do the job? Do you have the know-how? Et cetera, et cetera. And kind of the like machismo too. I feel like there's a sure. bit of a, I had to do some work in kitchens for my dietitian training as well. And there's, I feel like there's this sort of energy of like, burn yourself, get over it, move on, you know, like, mm -hmm. and it's like, you're just you're supposed to kind of suck it up. And so there's not a lot of room for like self-care or feelings or, you know, things that are useful to well-rounded people. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. And so there's, you know, there's just a lot of those things. And I said, you know, towards about, I guess, around 2007, I, I started to think about needing a change. And then in 2008, I enrolled in West Virginia University mm -hmm. and moved again. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. And so um, 2008 was kind of more, I mean, transitioning. I mean, I moved in, again, still dealing with these issues in my body, still dealing with, again, you know, now I'm moving from a place. Well, I, I moved back to Johnstown after I did my my externship in Philadelphia. And then I was there for a few years. Um, so you're kind of back into this position, back into this black hole of a place where your body is not seen as valuable, but kind of going back now with a education about myself, right? Because I've been to these other places and now I kind of understand that I'm not the problem. Like the city is the problem. Right. You've seen enough cities now that it's like, okay, there's other places that accept me and value me. And this place is just weird. 
Right. Exactly. Slash racist. (laughs) Right. And so, you know, in those places, I think in some ways I started to temper my, my ideas. I mean, I still, I still had a negative self-evaluation of myself. Um, My body image still wasn't the greatest because I was smaller than what I was, but I wasn't, you know, I, you know, you still have a pouch and the things that you tell yourself, you look in the mirror and I'm like, man, but my hips still stick out and, and all of these other things. And so, right. There's never, never enough. There's you're never small enough. You're never, nobody's ever, you know, perfect enough, quote unquote, for this cultural ideal that we have. Right. In my mind. And so I'm still on some level, in some ways, attaining to this Eurocentric idea of like Mm. beauty and and those people don't have hips that stick out like mine. Mm. And, you know, and life would be easier if my hips would just suck in a little bit, you know, (laughs) a little bit more this type of idea. But at the same time, I'm also aware I'm kind of walking with this knowledge of knowing that but my body's not that bad. Like it's not all, it's not, you know, it's not all horrible. Mm. And so, I mean, I think at times that was probably something that kept me from extreme dieting, so to speak, Mm -hmm. like going off on, you know, just restricting what I eat to pulp, so to speak. It's like, Mm -hmm. there were moments that I had that kind of helped me temper and realize that uh, this is also just the perception of other people and it's not you. But when I moved to West Virginia in 2008, kind of being in another setting, um, but now in a university setting where I am older than everybody else, whether Mm. they know it or not, because I had to, you know, (laughs) I was often mistaken for being younger, the same, you know, the same age as the students that Mm -hmm. were there, which would kind of make sense in their assumptions. Right. But now I'm looking at these different things. And in 2010, I pretty much hunker down on myself and I say, I'm going to work to lose this weight again. So you're still very much in it with the the body image stuff. It was like weight loss was the goal. 2010, I start this weight loss regimen that I get to kind of control on my own. I'm reading things. I'm doing the research. I'm ascribing to different things. And I start on something I had never heard before, which was the Atkins diet. Mm. Yeah. So Mr. Atkins threw me in a (laughs) Yeah. It's a world of pain. That is right. And it's funny because that was so trendy in the late 90s, early 2000s. And now it's like nobody talks about Atkins anymore, really. But there's sort of the new version, the like 2.0 versions of that. It's like keto diet and paleo and whatever, which is just the same shit in a different package, you know. Right. And I think the thing that got me was because they send you free stuff. The Atkins diet was like, we'll send you some of these bars. And, you know, and then we'll give you this list. You get a whole kit and they send it to your house for free. So I'm a college student who doesn't yeah, like free stuff, right? <laughs> Especially so, college students. Like, right. <laughs> right. So they send me the, you know, they send me the free items and I look over the stuff and they give you all these lists of what you can eat and what you can't eat and all of this stuff. And so I put myself on this, on this journey and I lose a decent amount of weight. Up through 2011, I mean, 2012, I think I kind of peaked at where I was as far as weight loss went. I'm working out days a week. And in this process, I'm kind of being able to fill out what I actually like to do in my body, what I don't like to do and, and different things like that. And, you know, what works for me and what doesn't work for me. So it's not all bad. It's not all like 
the right. restrictive punishing stuff. Right. Well, I think through the through the restricting punishing stuff, I was finding out like, oh, like I really enjoy kickboxing. Like kickboxing is fun. Oh, I really enjoy weight uh, weightlifting. Um, I don't like to run in place. Like, you know, different things like that. But I feel like part of this is because in our culture, like you're not, you know, we get so used to body movements aren't necessary unless you're trying to lose weight, right? So it's like this idea that exercise really doesn't matter unless you're trying to lose weight. And if you don't have that type of, you know, when we were kids, our parents just say, well, go out and play, right? So that's body movement. So during our childhood, we spent a good amount of time just doing what we love to do. As you get older, you kind of get put in these restrictive boxes of, you know, do you want to walk on a treadmill? Like, do you, if you want to be active, it's not about you just going outside and playing, right? Like now there's some type of goal that's attached to it that you're supposed to feel a certain way and you're supposed to do a certain thing for certain results, et cetera, et cetera. Check these boxes so that you'll, you know, fit into our cultural ideal of what beauty is supposed to look like. Right. And so from this place, it's like you lose touch. I forgot that I like to jump rope. <laughs> like, you know, it's it's things like that. I forgot that I that, you know, I might have enjoyed skipping or I, you know, you don't get to test out these things like, well, I really do like whenever I use my strength to do different things. And so setting up my own regimen or whatever in this process, I'm kind of figuring out and filling those things out. But it's still coupled with this idea of being smaller in my body, which caused me to be super obsessive about being smaller in my body. And so now I'm more hard on myself than I ever was before. And I'm super concerned about what I eat, how much of it I eat, what I can do to offset what I eat. I graduated from West Virginia in 2012. And I remember still at the time being on this Atkins diet. And at my graduation party, I mean, we barbecued because it was like May and they bought like a whole bunch of watermelon. So one of the, one of the restricted foods on the Atkins diet is watermelon. But you know me, I'm saying it's my graduation. It's my party. I'm coming for all the watermelon that I can get. And so I remember consuming the watermelon and having a good time and laughing and joking with everybody. And then everybody goes home and I'm getting myself together and I stand on this scale and I realize when I stand on the scale that I weigh a substantially amount more. And so now I'm upset and I'm angry. And at the time, you know, Atkins, they kind of have like this discussion board where people can go and ask questions and I explain to people what happened. You know, I had this party, I had this watermelon and people are like, yeah, well, that will happen. Yeah, there's a lot of, you know, there, there's a lot of sugar and watermelon in this. And so to me, one of the first things that I'm looking at, I'm saying, hey, but something's not right. There's no way I can consume something for one day and, you know, and my weight spike the way it does. Right. There's no way that could be due to the watermelon. Like that's bogus. Now I'm thinking like my, my wheels are turning. Cause at this point I still don't know about fat activism. I still don't know about haze. I don't know about any of this stuff, but there's something about this process that now makes me skeptical. That's great. That's like a little intuition seed kind of. Right. And so kind of from that place, I'm still, you know, I I'm upset about it, but I'm still working towards the body image that I think I should have. But at the same time, I'm starting now to wean myself off of the Atkins diet because I'm like, nah, 
something's not right and I like watermelon. And if I want to eat watermelon, then I can't have this. I can't be on the Atkins diet. And so I start to kind of pull myself away from that diet in particular. And I say, you know, we'll just, we'll start to research some stuff. We'll start to look up some things um, about nutrition and about all of these other things. But of course, when you deal with weight loss, the stuff about nutrition is going to be what you've already, what you've always heard, all the diet culture stuff about nutrition. And so I relocate to the University of Missouri to do my master's degree. Were you studying anything to do with fat acceptance or body image at that point? Or what was your- Not at first. Interesting. (laughs) Not at first. So I get to the school and I'm like, I was initially interested in interpersonal communication, particularly romantic relationships. And I was looking at military couples. So I get there and I'm all gung-ho and I'm ready to do this stuff and and all of these things. And um, 2013, I think, was when the news came out about they were trying to name, what was it, obesity a disease. And I remember sitting in my bed watching TV that day, and I remember it coming on the news. Now, typically, I didn't really watch the news too much, but for some reason, I was watching the news that day. And I remember being so upset and so angry, right? Because here I am, I've lived in this fat body my whole life, and I've never considered myself disabled. The only reason why they want to term this term, should I say, of obesity. And I don't personally use that term, but they wanted to name it a disease. And I remember being so angry. I think I called my sister and I was flipping out and like, she didn't get it. So you hang up the phone because you need some, you know, you kind of, you're looking for this thing of support. They're like, this doesn't make sense. And I'm outraged. And in that moment, I changed my research trajectory. Wow. Yeah. And so I go to my advisors and them and I say, listen, this is what I want to do for my thesis. Oh, that's amazing. And I say, this is what we need to do. This is how we need to figure it out. And at the time, again, I don't know anything about haze. I don't know anything about fat activism. And so I'm kind of in a dark hole. You know, I'm throwing shots in the dark and hoping that something would stick. And grateful enough, I had an advisor that was willing to work with me. And so coming out of 2013, I'm reading more. Now I'm more in touch with, I'm finding research finding out that people have been writing on fat acceptance for ages. And I'm like, I never knew this stuff existed. And it's like such a happy day for me. But also at the same time, now looking at my own body and seeing how my own body is changing because I'm gaining weight again. And now having the the information, the research that is beside me, that's helping to explain why, why these things are happening actually winds up being a help for me. Yeah, I can imagine because it's like diet culture tells you, well, it's your fault. This is all wrong. You got to do something about it. The, you know, Hayes literature and fat acceptance kind of puts a different frame on it and says, actually, like the research shows dieting doesn't work for anyone, that it's not your fault. It's the diet's fault. And here's what's happening in your body to cause people to regain weight. And that's okay. Like that's what your body probably needs right now. Right. And so going through this process now, 2013 into 2014, I'm making a transition. I'm relocating to, <laughs> to New Jersey to do my PhD. I'm larger than what I, what I was in 2012 when I came to the master's program. And I'm now equipped with education. I'm now equipped and I can kind of come in with, you know, going into my PhD program. I'm going in with an idea of knowing, okay, this is what I want to study. Um, and I've spent the last four years running towards that goal. 
Yeah, and getting really versed in the literature and sort of immersed in the world. That's a really powerful feeling. Yeah, and so kind of being where I am now, knowing that I've divested from this table of diet culture and of dieting and understanding that bodies change. Bodies change and life happens and that doesn't change the value that rests within my person. And coming to grips with that and it's not that every day that is the mantra. It's the mantra, but some days it's louder than others. I'll say that. Some days it gets clouded by just life. <laughs> right. Just by life in general. And um, in 2015, I got sick again. <laughs> got sick again um, with something that didn't have anything to do with my weight. Grateful enough that this time going through these processes, having literature, right? Having research beside you, having stories that didn't push me into a spiral of yo-yo dieting, that didn't push me into a place of where I'm looking at my body and realizing that I've gained weight and hating what I see in the mirror. That was extremely helpful for me. And so it's kind of like the cycle of life happens again, but this time you're ready for it in some ways. Yeah. And you're not blaming yourself for it. For sure. Right. And walking through those steps and now um, being kind of at the end of this journey, uh, as far as my dissertation is concerned, it's like, wow, to kind of get to this place to know that this is not just something that, you know, I can read about because in academia, we all read. Right. It's like a requirement. Yeah. <laughs> right? We all read. We all write on some level. We all produce, you know, these publications. And we typically um, sometimes we talk about things that we're not connected to. I've had privilege in this space to kind of talk about something that I'm connected to, to talk about something that I can relate to on so many different levels and kind of walking through what my dissertation means, not just for me having a degree to be conferred on me, but also what that means for the people who may need the same support that I needed at some point that can read it and say, okay, well, wait a minute. Okay. Like, so this is what's going on. You mean that there is a community of individuals where I can go for support. You don't necessarily have to jump down that rabbit hole. And that's what it is really the rabbit hole of dieting, diet culture, you know, making your body or at least trying to make your body force your body to conform to a norm that it has no idea exists, you know, that ultimately is for commodity and it's for the objectification of other people, other eyes, the things that we do to our bodies in hopes of being able to walk outside so somebody else can say, I approve is a lot. It's a whole lot. It is. And it's sold to us like it's normal. It's sold to us like, oh, this is what you have to do. This is just a requirement of being a human and especially, you know, a human in a female identified body a lot of the time and also a human in a non-white, cisgender, straight male body. You know, anyone who sort of deviates from that mythical norm, as I think Audre Lorde called it, like has to do a lot more work to try to prove themselves. And it's just held up as like, no, but this is this is what it is. And it's your fault that you don't you know, meet up with these standards. So you figure it out, which is just bullshit. Right. And so it's kind of going through that. And then also the ways in which our identities intersect. So you have to deal with that. Right. And so you have these issues of what it means to be black. Um, and particularly for me in academia, being a PhD, I'm typically the only chocolate chip in a room, <laughs> which changes things. You know, it's like I'm the only black woman here. So now I'm black and I'm a woman. And I'm fat. 
And I'm talking about fat stuff, right? And the ways in which, you know, fatness is kind of, well, at least the fat phobia is perpetuated by white supremacy. And dealing with those different things is like, yeah, I'm not always the most popular person in the room either, right? And it's like you having to navigate those spaces in your life and figuring out um, where you fit and, and how you fit and if you're willing to kick in the door in some ways. And so that's kind of been my experience even outside of this cultural norm, thinking about you know people with multiple identities, particularly identities that are oppressed in systems, trying to figure out how we can navigate in spaces. We already, you know, we're, it's like we're, we already are well aware. We know that we are not necessarily, there hasn't been a space made for us, but we have to be strategic about the ways in which we plan to navigate while we're there. And so it's definitely been a learning experience on that end and realizing, you know, when you're confronted with these pressures that you don't necessarily have to conform. Me wearing my natural hair in academia, in boardrooms, for job interviews. That's a brave act. It's a statement. Yeah. yeah. And it's, it's political in a, in a lot of ways. But saying within myself, you know, looking at myself in the mirror and saying, but there's absolutely nothing wrong with your hair. Right. The same way I have to tell myself there's absolutely nothing wrong with your hips, even if they don't fit in the chair with those little arms that they put on the side. There's nothing wrong with your hips. I mean, one thing for me personally, being a teacher, uh, being an instructor in the classroom setting, I had to be a teaching assistant about a year ago. And they have like large lecture classes. Usually you have auditorium seating. And so I had to sit in the seats during the time when there was teaching going on. And I remember squeezing into those seats and thinking to myself, there are students who are larger than me. They can't fit in these seats. So there's a good possibility that students are missing class because they can't fit. You only have one desk in the back that so I guess is supposed to be accommodating towards um, individuals who can't sit in the seats. One though, like that's ridiculous. Right. And it's like, you start to notice how, you know, people who have larger bodies or people who aren't able to sit in these seats, like how do they navigate on campus? How do they navigate their ways around? How are they still getting their education? But yet you have this sign with schools that say, well, we're diverse and we accept everybody, but eh, not really, not if the seats don't fit me and not if I'm being required to pay what everybody else pays. Like, obviously this is not like a point of inclusion. Right. That's such a good point. Like it's these structural things, these structural ways of excluding people in larger bodies or people who don't, you know, meet up with a standard in whatever way is a way of just sort of quietly like excluding them from the whole operation of saying like, you don't get this education and no, we're totally diverse and inclusive and it's fine, but come sit in these seats that aren't made for you. Like what kind of mixed message is that sending, you know? Right. And I mean, often, you know, when we start to often when we think about these issues, I mean, I study organizational communication. Um, and so when we start talking about these issues, whenever you are dealing with, you know, structural problems, you have organizations who are very vocal about what it means to be diverse, right? Or what it means to be inclusive, um, but you don't see it in practice. Um, and oftentimes that's where we struggle. Even if you're talking about being in academia and you're welcoming women or you're welcoming women of color, black women of color. Well, if you accept nine 
individuals who are Caucasian and one African-American, one person of color, that kind of speaks a little bit to your diversity. If you only call the black kids when it's time to do like the photo shoots for the school so you can put them on your brochures, that also speaks to your commitment and diversity and inclusion. And so you know, kind of looking at organizational communication. Again, when people talk about racism being structural, when we talk about, you know, fat phobia being structural, we're saying that in a lot of ways, it's already written into the practices of the organizations that fat people are not welcome, that people of color are not welcome, that women aren't welcome. And so it's those things that need to be broken, but those are the harder places, right? Yeah, those are the things that people don't really want to recognize because organizations will say like, no, we're diverse, we're welcoming, but they have these policies that have just been longstanding that exclude people that they're not really willing to look at. And I've found, you know, in conversations about race and intersectionality, especially within like the eating disorder community, some stuff came up recently in a group that I'm a part of where, you know, there was a a list made of professionals in the eating disorder community that was highly white and someone pointed it out. And then there was a lot of piling on of like, what are you doing pointing that out? You know, you're shaming the person who created the list and, you know, a lot of backlash and a lot of defensiveness and guilt, you know, defensiveness and sort of anger directed towards someone who had made people have to look within, you know, look at themselves and say, oh, do we have a problem in this community? Like, do we have a problem, you know, at a structural level? Because nobody wants to admit that they intentionally exclude anyone no one really good-hearted people with good intentions probably are not intentionally excluding anyone and yet there's things that they haven't examined that they are ignorant of those deeper levels that do exclude people and so being defensive about that and saying well I never meant to you know I would never I'm not racist or I'm not discriminating against fat people or against women it's like okay but that's not the point like it's not let's let's sort of move past the personal blaming or shifting of the blame and talk about how this action or this situation or this structure is racist or is sexist or is homophobic or whatever is anti-fat you know like how can we change the system and not you know people don't have to defend or sort of stand up for like how they're not deliberately doing that because sometimes we all do unintentional things that exclude people and I think the best that we can do is just apologize and try to do better right and sometimes I mean and if you have the power to change it then to change it for sure and I think that you know that in my opinion is where things tend to fall apart because people take things very personally and so if we get stuck on well I'm not I'm not I'm not we never move past the point to where we can say okay but this is the practice And what can we do to dismantle the practice, right? Like this is the structure. Um, What can we do to dismantle the structure, right? And so if a a teacher books a class in an auditorium setting and then students who are larger in size can't fit in the seats and say, well, this is fat phobic, this is anti-fat, like, you know, we're going to go and complain. And the teacher says, well, I'm not fat phobic. I'm not anti-fat, Right. Okay, but it's the structure, right? It's the practice. On some level, you probably didn't think that there would be bodies who didn't fit in the seats. Um, And so now what we need to do is we need to change the structure. Are you going to change your classroom or not? Right. That's kind of where it comes down to. And so I think, you know, when we are dealing with these issues and realizing that 
a lot of what we know as society, particularly in the United States, has been structured around certain ideas, certain thoughts, certain ideologies. And that is what ultimately we want to combat, right? We want to combat those higher levels of structure because that is where real change comes about. Not to say that there's anything lost in interpersonal change and having conversations with your loved ones or different things like that. But those are more close-knit type of relationships. But I want to know that if I go to fly on the airplane, I'm going to have seating, right? I don't want to get to the airplane and then they say, well, either you buy two tickets or you have to leave because you're, you know, you're too large or different things like that. Like, I want to know that I can navigate this world and navigate my myself and society um, without these barriers. You know, that's the goal. Yeah, that is the goal. That's not too much to ask, I don't think. I think a lot of companies and organizations probably feel like it's too much to ask because it costs money or it makes people uncomfortable to have to talk about it or all of the above, you know. But I think it's really a fundamental human right to be able to engage in the same spaces as everybody else is entitled to, you know, to have accommodations made for your body if it doesn't fit into the sort of standard seating or whatever that's available, like to have options there for you or to have all the seating be accessible, even better, you know. But yeah, it's how, you know, in your research on this, how do organizations communicate effectively to make these structural changes? And what are, I mean, we've been talking a little bit about like the barriers to effective communication, but like what are some of the ways that are, you know, sort of positive communication styles that help make these structural changes? You know, I'm going to be honest and say that either I have not read that, <laughs> the read that <laughs> literature or that what we find is that there isn't like these positive communication for changes, so to speak. Um, what we find is that organizations send messages that mean something, but they communicate something different. Okay. And so it's kind of like if we say, you know, for example, if, if there's organizations out there that talk about paternity leave or maternity leave. So it's something that's written into the policy of organizations that employees have an opportunity to kind of opt into in the event that they need it or sick leave. Right. Um, but then there are practices that are taken within the organization that send messages to employees that if they have to take off or being sick, then they're weak. If they take off for six weeks at a time, they're kind of leaving the organization short change and it puts a hardship on the organization. So as a result, then employees are less likely to take sick leave. They're less likely to participate in maternity leave or paternity leave because although it's written in policy, the way that it's communicated to members of the organization is different. That makes so much sense. And I feel that very much in like office environments that I've worked in. It was like you get all this vacation or you get a lunch hour or whatever, like you should take it. But then everybody's at their desk. Everybody's working through lunch. Nobody's taking vacation. And it's like, right. Well, I don't want to be the one, you know, seeming to slack off by doing right. by taking these things that are supposedly entitled to me. So I guess I'll just, you know, keep working, too. 
And particularly when we talk about like um, matters of identification. So you identifying with the organization. So if you have a strong identification with the organization, which is something that I see a lot when we talk about like university culture, like, you know, if you consider yourself like Mizzou, I think they're the tigers. Like if I consider myself a Mizzou tiger and Mizzou tigers stand for commitment and hardworking and pushing past the limits and all of these other things, if I internalize that, then that's what I'm going to make sure gets like, that's the message that I'm going to make sure I send. Right. And so it's not going to be, oh, well, I need six weeks off. Oh, I'm sick. I just don't feel good. That thing like, but I'm a tiger and I'm hardworking. And like, no, that's not what's going to happen. I'm going to push through as much as I can till somebody, you know, my boss sticks his head in in the door and say, go home. Like you're sick. And right at this point, you're putting everybody else in jeopardy. Go home. And so, again, like when we talk about issues of diversity and inclusion, and I'll also add on some level, you know, when we talk about diversity and inclusion, oftentimes larger bodies are not something that's taken in account of the conversation in general, right? And so sometimes, you know, one of the things that I think happens is that there is a minimizing of the trauma that fat bodies endure because it's not the more well-known types of discrimination. And so it's not racism. It's not sexism, right? It's not ableism. It's like, you're all the way, you know, if we had to do a chart of like what injustices matter the most, you would have to go down a whole list of things before you got to the point to where you would say something like, oh, okay. And here is anti-fat rhetoric, fat phobia, fat shaming, all of these different things. And I think you can kind of see that in some ways. And even in popular media, the way that it's taken up, right? Like what does fat shaming mean? Um, The only time we really care about body shaming is when it's on smaller white individuals, right? And so if Jennifer Lawrence's body shamed, she took the Instagram and she said this, that, and the other, like those things make headlines. Whereas when you are talking about individuals who actually possess larger bodies, with the exception of like Gabby Sidibe, I think at one point she was in the, she had made news headlines because someone has said something about her body and she was like, she's going to cry her whole way home while she's flying in her jet, something of that nature. But you don't hear those things in the news as much. And part of it is because when your society is ran by the dominant discourse of fat rejection, People think that you're just making noise anyway. And so it's like fat shaming. Ah, that doesn't exist. If a doctor is telling you, you know, what you call fat shaming, no, you just need to lose weight. You just need to, you know, you need to commit yourself. That's the problem. You don't have the willpower. Or the people who think that fat shaming is the path to health because it's like, well, it's going to make people take responsibility, quote unquote, and, you know, change their size, which obviously we know is not possible, is not a thing. And also shame has been shown not to lead to sustainable health behaviors, actually. So there's that piece as well. Right. Absolutely. And so there's been a a good amount of research that's been done on that, that shame doesn't necessarily lead to change. In fact, it actually is counterproductive and it causes people to actually run towards the behaviors that everybody wants them to reject in the first place. You know, I just think that there's a lot to talk about in regards to fat phobia because there's so many different factors that play a part. And if nobody else sees your, you know, sees your cause as worthy, um, then what winds up happening is that you have to, in some ways, bring attention to yourself in hopes that people will listen. Totally. I mean, even in our laws, we see like 
body size is not a protected category the way that, you know, gender and sexual orientation in some states, not all, I think, you know, ability, all those things are are considered protected categories of identity. Right. And I mean, and this is despite research saying (laughs) that 95% of diets don't work. Despite research saying, you know, that most people after they get weight loss surgery, they gain their weight back within five years. So you have, you know, the high percentages of death that happen when we talk about issues of of surgery. And and, um, Marilyn Wan, she talks about like stomach amputation, right? So despite research being out there, and this is why, like, I never really understood like, you know, matters of like, when we talk about weight loss, talk about people being able to love themselves as themselves. I never really understood how much, I guess, like fat rejection was an ideology until I started talking about this stuff. Cause people get so angry. They get so perturbed that like you're fat and you live in a fat body and like you take pictures and you're smiling, you know, you're taking pictures and you're happy with your food and you're happy with your friends and you're buying clothes that accentuate your curves, so to speak, and and all of these other things. And it's like, you know, telling somebody that they can be accepted as they are the way that they are right now. I almost feels like in some ways it comes up against that ideology. It kind of dashes the dreams and the hopes of individuals and the privilege of individuals who for so long have taken for granted that, you know, having a smaller body means that you have access to more things, that you're going to be more preferred. There's a lot of things to unpack, you know, when when we sit and we talk about the struggles or not even just, yeah, the struggles around fat acceptance. Totally. Yeah. That anger, you know, that anger that you face when you show yourself accepting your body and put the message out there of fat acceptance. I think that is such an important point to make is that that anger comes from privilege. That anger comes from people's worldviews being challenged and the worldview is rooted in racism and oppression. Like I've been doing some research on the history of diet culture and finding that really a big root of it in the root system of diet culture is racism is like this evolutionary idea that quote unquote more evolved people evolutionary ideas back from the mid 1800s you know that being more evolved means being in a smaller body also means being white it's like the white male evolutionary biologists put themselves at the top of the evolutionary chain go figure and then everybody else you know in varying degrees levels of oppression beneath them based on you know sort of already existing hierarchies of racism and sexism and so Like, it's just fascinating how, you know, out of that sort of evolutionary hierarchy came this idea that larger bodies are associated with, quote unquote, more primitive and, quote unquote, less evolved cultures. And so, therefore, we want to not have larger bodies because that means bad things. That's something that, you know, white Europeans don't want to be. And that seems to be where a lot of this a lot of this stuff comes from. And I think when you sort of say it out loud like that. Like when I came across that research, I was like, that really puts a pretty clear point on it, you know, in a way that a lot of people talk about fat phobia as being really entangled with racism. But I think it's it's hard sometimes for people who don't know that already or who aren't already sort of immersed in the literature and the discourse around that to acknowledge it. And they can sort of say like, oh, that's just liberal talk or whatever. Like that's people being too sensitive or something. But it's like, no, actually, if you look at the history of it, there are very clear 
um, moments where it was it was very much about race and that was being used to oppress people in larger bodies. And that's why it's so tied up. You know, these systems of oppression are so tied up together. And that's why we need to be fighting both and all of them really at the same time. Right. And I wholeheartedly, you know, I agree with that. I mean, I think, you know, when we start to and I well, I don't think that we always look at the past enough, even though I've gotten my moving towards getting my degree in communication. I've always enjoyed history. I've always enjoyed being able to kind of look back and look at the origins of things. And I think that it helps us because it helps to inform our present. And we can kind of then figure out where we're moving forward to, at least our goals and moving forward. And I think that there's a lot in this country that, you know, white supremacy is going to take center stage. It's just the way that it is. You know, you can't talk about fat phobia without talking about Christianity. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Like, you know, like you can't talk about fat phobia without talking about a lot of those things. I saw like a book title called, I saw some of that stuff come up in the research too on the history of diet culture. And it's like, there's something called losing weight for him or it's it's like, oh, more of him, less of you (laughs) is like the title of a Christian diet book. It's like you're getting closer to God by shrinking your body. And I mean, obviously the, you know, long history of that before the sort of contemporary period is like people denying their body as a way to try to get closer to God and, you know, fast and penance and all of this stuff is really right. tied up in in religion. So there's that whole right. piece. And the issue of gluttony, right? And if, if you're not, you know, gluttonous people, because I mean, and it's very, because the simple, the ignorance of it all is that obviously you're fat because you eat more, right? Like that tends to be the notion, right? Like you're bigger because you consume more food than everybody else. And so, yeah, then if you're looking at it through that lens, then gluttony makes sense. But if fat be genetic, okay, I'm going to eat peas and still be in this larger body, right? I'm going to eat spinach and still be in this larger body. It's very simplistic ignorance that has been passed on throughout the ages, the same way slavery when people would talk about the size of black people's brains and, you know, just very like science that we should kind of really do away with. Yeah. If you want to even call it science, pseudoscience. Pseudoscience. Totally. Right. That that we should absolutely do away with. Yeah. Cause it has its roots in that sort of eugenics type of thing that we know, we know where that went. Like, that's not a good look, you know, let's get rid of that completely. And this is a vestige of it. This is, a way like diet culture is a way in which this sort of like evolutionary oppression using evolutionary language to oppress people is persisting in modern day culture. And it's very like it goes under the guise now of health. So it's sort of been sanitized and people don't know the nefarious roots of it. They just know like, oh, well, I have to lose weight to be healthy. Like, that's what you're supposed to do. And like, oh, if someone's fat and talking about loving themselves, they're just promoting obesity and that's bad, you know? And it's like, that's a very simplistic view that really glosses over all of the deeper roots of oppression and horrible stuff that that led to this place that we're at now and glossing over it like that is exactly what the oppressive system wants to do it's like really fanning the flames of that so that people don't look at it and say no this is actually racist this is actually based on eugenics and that's fucked up and let's get rid of it right and so it's kind of you know 
again, I think going back and doing history and understanding that, and I, I don't think it's going to be an easy place. I think it's going to be a hard, it's a hard place. People coming to grips and to norms, but I feel like, you know, not looking back at history, not doing the work means that people are dying. Right. Like the same way, not doing the work about racism. People are dying. They're dying today and they're dying out of ignorance because they don't know the you know, it's kind of like I forget what it's called. The iceberg thing that they show you in school. Tip of the iceberg. With all the other stuff underneath. Like they don't know all the causes. They don't know the laws, the ordinances, the um, the practices that what we know racism as today has been built on. Um, or what we know fat phobia today has been built on. And so there is a, at least for me, there is a burning desire uh, for education in these areas um, so people can be informed. And more so um, than people, I mean, it'd be great if people on the outside would be informed, but people who internalize fat phobia in a lot of ways, the community, I think is like my concern um, first, like we on some level, like understanding and knowing what it is to be fat in this world, grow up to be fat in this world, to make strides, to be smaller and still wind up fat in this world. We got to cast off the the responsibility of carrying that and knowing more about our own bodies, embracing our own bodies um, so that even if the stuff on the outside never changes, we have a power within ourselves that we can walk in that we can still live our best lives, that we have the ammunition in so many words to kind of fight the naysayers. Because there are people out there who are just simply not living life because they've been told that they're not allowed to. They're told that they're not going to be able to. And I mean, I think one of the awesome things about, you know, some of the the, the body movement practices that we see happening now and the meditation and different things like that through yoga, you see larger bodies doing things that everybody says we're not supposed to be able to do. Right. And so whenever I lift my all my weight up on my neck and I'm doing headstands and I'm videotaping it so people can see it and different things like that. And you're literally watching fat bodies defy gravity in a way that hasn't been told to them before. I think images like those are powerful. Right. And they speak to the strength that fat bodies possess, even though we are told that we don't have strength. Right. We're told that the only thing that our body is carrying is this extra weight and, you know, and your heart's working itself twice as hard and you're, you have mobility issues and, and all of these other things. But there's been, you know, there is a community of us who, who have always done that. And so I think when I say done that, I mean, kind of defied the odds. And so I think that it's important to have that information available and at least the history of where those things spring from so that people can kind of then go back and reevaluate themselves and be, you know, reevaluate their own thoughts and their own practices in hopes of having access to a life that does not involve dieting and that does not involve them hating their bodies because it's different than everybody else's. Yes. Oh, that's so well said. And I think that's a beautiful note to end on because I think we really do need those counterexamples. And I think you're doing such an amazing job of putting that out into the world. And I'm so excited for your research and eventually, hopefully, whatever writing or publication you do of it. So tell us a little more about that and where people can find out more about your work and where you're eventually going to be sharing it. Okay, so that would be dissertation, which was turned in on March the 2nd. 
So hopefully, yeah, <laughs> so hopefully um, with a few revisions, I would have finished my degree at Rutgers University with a PhD in communication and then kind of start to think about the next steps that I want to take as far as publication is concerned. The hope is to make my research accessible to members who are part of the fat acceptance community and to people who oppose it. Um, So I'm going to be thinking about that a little bit more strategically. In the meantime, in between time, I have social media pages. Um, I do what is named Fresh Out the Cocoon podcast, um, which talks specifically about the lived experiences of black individuals, black women, black femmes, fat black bodies um, in the United States. And then I also provide a platform by interviewing other activists who are in this country and abroad doing work. So you can catch me there. My IG is Fresh Out the Cocoon. I have a Facebook page. Um, It's not as active. Follow me on IG, guys. Just follow me on IG. I'm going to add things as time goes, but that's what I can kind of manage right now. Yeah, we got to have our one social media channel. I feel like it's like you can't do them all. It's too much. Yeah, (laughs) it's just way like way too much. And so so yeah, IG is kind of that place. I'm also working alongside ASDA. So I'm the chair for the diversity and inclusion committee there. Um, and I'm happy to kind of be a part of that and working with individuals to make sure that all voices are included in the things that ASDA puts out. We have a annual conference that's coming up in August, I believe. So I hope to see people there. Yes, I will see you there. I'm very excited. Yes. Very yeah, excited very about excited about the things that are coming out of ASDA and kind of the direction that we're taking and those things. But yeah, I mean, if you can't see me in New Jersey, you can see me online. <laughs> see me online. It's the best place. I yeah, love it. And the, the podcast is on SoundCloud. It's on Apple Podcasts. I'm on Spreaker Radio, Google Play. Uh, kind of, I'm all over, all over those places. So one link will lead you to another. IG will kind of lead you wherever it is that you need to go. I'm extremely personable. Never feel like you can't drop me a message. Drop me a message. We can chat. We can talk. I always love to connect with other people. Oh, it's so great. Thank you so much, Joy. We'll put links to all that in the show notes too so people can find you everywhere. Oh, that'd be great. Thank you. I appreciate that. Yeah, and thank you for sharing your story. This was so wonderful and the time just flew by. Yes, it was a pleasure being here and and I thank you for having me. So it's greatly appreciated. So that is our show. Thanks again so much to Joy Cox for joining us on this episode. And thanks to you for listening. If you're looking for some practical tips to get started on your own anti-diet journey, grab my free audio guide, Seven Simple Strategies for Finding Peace and Freedom with Food. Head over to christyharrison.com slash strategies to get it. That's christyharrison.com slash strategies. If you've gotten something out of this podcast, please help us reach more people who need to hear the anti-diet message because who doesn't by getting your friends and family to subscribe. And don't forget to subscribe to it yourself, too. You can go to christyharrison.com slash subscribe to see some of the many places where you can subscribe to the show. And of course, Apple Podcasts and iTunes are my favorites because when you subscribe there, you'll help us keep rising up in the podcast rankings where we've been in the top 50 to 100 health podcasts for more than a year now pretty cool and I love to keep rising up. You can also leave us a nice rating and review in your podcast provider of choice, which is always so appreciated. To get full show notes from this episode, including all the resources we mentioned, plus a full transcript, head over to christyharrison.com slash 156. That's christyharrison.com slash 156. And to get the transcript, just scroll down to the bottom of the page and enter your email address where it says get the transcript. A big thanks to our editors and engineers at Podcast Fast Track and to my team at Food Psych Programs for helping me out with all the moving parts that go into 
producing this show every week. Our album art was photographed by Abby Moore Photography and designed by Meredith Noble. And the music you're hearing behind me now is by a band called AWOL. And the track is called Food, used under the Creative Commons license. Thanks again for listening. And until next time, stay psyched. Stupid or scared, no work in the kitchen now. Who put you there in that perfect position now? Bullies want your food, and you ain't really beat. Have you ever went over your friend?